Good morning, First Baptist. I am uh, very grateful for the work that, that Karis is doing to make this Embrace Grace effort happen. You know, it's one thing for us to, to talk about the sin of abortion. It's another thing for us to step out and step up and start helping these young mothers so they have an alternative. So I'm very thankful for that ministry and what's going to be happening there. A few years ago, I received a phone call from a friend of mine and he said, I really need to come over and talk to you. <clears throat> now, he'd not said this to me before, so it, it got my attention. And he lived a couple of states away. So I said, absolutely. If you're, if you're coming into town, you know, please come and, and visit me. He said, no, I really need to come in town to talk to you. And I said, okay, come over. So he comes over to my house, and I'll never forget him walking through the front door of our house there in Charleston, West Virginia, and he looked at me and he said, Chad, my wife left me. And he walked over to me and he just cried on my shoulder. It seemed like for five or ten minutes. Many of you know that sting. This was not something that I had really expected. This was not something that he had expected. But nonetheless, this came really through no desire of his, this wasn't something that he wanted, but it happened. And sometimes it comes as a sting, it comes in a moment when, when someone didn't realize this was going to happen. But then there's also a, a slow actuality of a divorce, where it's coming on, it takes time, but it almost seems like this inevitable thing out there in the distance. And it is never an easy thing to process and to go through. I would dare say that everyone in here, whether it's something that you've personally gone through or if it's something that an immediate family member has gone through, you know the pain that I'm talking about. It could be a friend. However, I'm guessing that all of us in some way have been touched by divorce. And I know that uh, the difficulty in some of this is the frivolity with which Marriage is sometimes treated in our day and age. I was going over a lot of statistics yesterday and um, the day before, actually the past week, and I was momentarily encouraged by what I saw because there's actually a decline in divorce. But then I started digging in as to why there was a decline in divorce, and it's because there's a decline in marriage. And I started looking through the statistics on marriage, and this was fascinating. Uh, as recently as 2000, married 25 to 34-year-olds outnumber their never-married peers by 55% to 34%. So in 2000, um, those, those aged 25 to 34, 55% of the population uh, was, was married, 34% was unmarried. Within 15 years, that was flip-flopped. Those statistics are almost exactly the opposite of each other. And when you dig in, and there was actually an article about this in the Wall Street Journal, and one man very forthrightly stated that the reason for this is what he described, and this was very blunt, but he described it as cheap sex, that men do not have to provide what they once did to sleep with someone. 
So marriage is on decline. In addition to that, the divorce statistics are, are still very high. And part of that, I believe, is what you consider, or, or when you consider the weight that has been placed on a romantic relationship and what it's supposed to provide, I thought, well, it's no wonder that so many end in divorce. Uh, there was an insightful study that was just done that theorizes that as people abandon religious institutions, all of that weight is placed on a romantic relationship. Now, what does that mean? Uh, in the article that I read, it said, if you think clean laundry and regular meals require effort, try meeting the demands of relationship worship today by providing transcendence, unconditional love, wholeness, meaning, worth, and communion. In other words, as people step away from the church and they step away from God, this then is what they expect a romantic relationship to give them. Everything that a church should be provided. In that same article, it says this. Uh, this was in a magazine called First Things. It said, the Western fixation on romantic love creates a crushing burden for mere mortals. It engenders a powerful myth regarding love, courtship, and marriage that a fallible human partner can not only share our passions but satisfy our existential yearnings. Contemporary couples expect much more from marriage than it can realistically deliver. <clears throat> As one professor at Northwestern University said, most of us will be kind of shocked by how many expectations and needs we've piled up on top of this one relationship. And it goes without saying that when it's discovered that the relationship cannot meet all of those needs, that oftentimes the consequence is divorce. And then I get to the verse like the one that we're going to be looking at today. This is in Mark 10. A very specific call of Christ where he quotes from the Old Testament and says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So the question we're going to dig into today, how do married couples pursue God as one flesh? What does one flesh mean? How do we go about doing this and the passage we'll be in today is Mark chapter 10. We'll be in Mark 10. We'll be journeying through the book of Mark from now until the time of Easter, uh, working our way with these disciples, learning with these disciples, and probably finding ourselves oftentimes making the same mistakes as these disciples. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus left that place and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan River. Again, crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Then some Pharisees came, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of dis dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, he wrote this commandment for you because of your hard hearts. But from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In the house, once again, the disciples asked him about this. 
So he told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thank you. You may be seated. So today we're going to go uh, through these verses. We'll actually look at the last half and then go back and look at the first half. And we'll look at this from three different perspectives. First, we'll see God's command of marriage in this passage. And then we'll look at the world's violation of marriage. And finally, we'll talk about the disciples' correction of marriage. This is how you and I are to pursue God as one flesh. So we'll talk our way through these three things. And I also want to say something right here at the very outset. <clears throat> the last thing I want to do today is add any pain to anyone who has gone through a divorce. I've seen it up close and personally. I know it is one of the deepest pains, and I've had people describe it to me as a pain uh, worse than the grief of death. So I want to say the last thing I want to do uh, is add to your pain. And I know the circumstances of some of the divorces that, many, that some of you have gone through, it's, and it frankly was, was no fault of your own. Oftentimes it's the sin of someone else. So I want to say that at the outset. Uh, we, we are all, without exception, sinners dependent on God's grace. So first of all, let's take a closer look at the last half of this passage, what God's command and design is uh, regarding marriage. And let's start there in verse 6. So we see Jesus looking back. He looks back at the time of creation. And starting at verse 6, he's quoting now from Genesis chapter 2, and he He's quoting verses 24 and 25. He says there, But from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So very clearly, marriage is between one man and one woman becoming one flesh. And the scriptures make that very clear. This one flesh thing is a very mysterious phrase. I mean, we go to the marriage, right? We go there, we're sitting through the, the whole spiel. I mean, they're both standing up there. We hear what the pastor has to say. Uh, then we go to the, the, the reception and we celebrate, right? This is a happy occasion. But something we don't see is this joining that God does of two people. There is this mystery to it. And it happens in a physical sense when the couple comes together physically. Um, but even this is a picture of something that has happened on a deeper spiritual and emotional level. As a matter of fact, we see this in Genesis 2. Uh, 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So see, verse, twi verse 25 clues us into this result of the man and woman being made one flesh. And it says the result of that is that they were naked and they were not ashamed. So, um, 
What does that mean exactly? What did that mean for their relationship? And really it meant that they had total openness and trust. It allowed them to be completely vulnerable and honest with one another. And it also says they were unashamed. There was no hiding of who they were. They could completely be themselves. And there was no fear. When Adam and Eve were together, when they were married on that day they were created, there was absolutely not a shred of fear between them. There was 100% complete open and honest, uh, openness and honesty. Uh, th there was nothing that was broken. It was perfect in every way. There was zero self-consciousness. They were perfectly happy. So a couple that is doing well in this oneness department, they can expect to be freely themselves. Uh, they can be totally accepted. There's both this physical and there's this emotional safety that happens when a couple's doing well at oneness. You know, in the eyes of the state, um, when, it, when a couple separates, when they divorce, it's basically like the dissolving of a business relationship. The lawyers come in and they decide who gets what. And, uh, but in the eyes of God, this is more like a surgery. This is like a physical taking apart of two people, of what he had joined together. It's really a separation that we don't even understand. That leads to verse 9. He said, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, again, we are all 100% dependent upon the grace of God. But we don't want to do anything that would move towards this kind of separation. Because he's making it very clear, let no one, not even, not the people within that marriage relationship do anything that would lend itself towards becoming separate. This is what God has brought together. So what happens? The disciples do what they do. And after Jesus had said these things to the Pharisees, uh, they pull them aside. They always like to ask questions in secret. They don't want to feel silly. So Lord, come over here and talk to us for a second. Let's unpack this a little bit. And then Jesus addresses the disciples in verses 11 and 12. And so he tells them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, there's a lot of adultery going on in these verses. And this is a difficult passage. Um, and it, I want to say something again at the outset. If you are in uh, your second marriage, do not second-guess the marriage you're in. Uh, at First Baptist, we want good, healthy, strong marriages. God's always taking two sinful people and miraculously bringing them together. So don't second-guess the marriage you're in. There's nothing good is going to come of that. So, um, now having said that, uh, it's clear from this passage that God's design for marriage is one of permanence. Now, if you were a Pharisee, you probably graduated from one of two schools. There was these sort of Pharisee schools you go to, these rabbinic schools. One was called the Hillel School. One was called the Shammai School. 
Now, if you went to the Shammai school, they taught you that the only reason you could divorce uh, was because of infidelity. Now, if you went to the Hillel school, you could divorce for any and every reason under the sun. As a matter of fact, there's uh, in one ancient writing, uh, it's cited that if the cooking was bad, that was reason enough for divorce. Okay? Now, interestingly, it was only the man that could file for divorce. But to the Romans that Mark was writing this letter to, there was a lot of Romans that, were, that, that Mark was addressing, a woman could file for divorce. So either a man or a woman could file for divorce. So Christ is then challenging this thinking that you could divorce for any and every reason under the sun. Uh, and he's saying it is adulterous for you to divorce your spouse for whatever reason and go marry another woman. He says you're committing adultery against her. Same thing for her. She leaves her husband and marries another man. Now, it's important to note, and I'm, I have to talk about this, there are scriptural reasons for divorce. One is infidelity. That's in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. But also in the case of de desertion. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, um, if someone deserts you, if you become a Christian and, and they decide, well, I, I can't do this, I can't handle this, or they may have said they were a believer, and it turns out they weren't. Paul makes allowance for divorce in that reason. Now, I, I do want to say that it doesn't mean you have to have a divorce. Lots of couples have been able to work through um, issues of infidelity, but some don't. Uh, and at one time, I was pretty dogmatic uh, about these verses. Um, I was pretty dogmatic about thinking, well, I'll never perform a marriage for couples who've gone through a divorce. Now, when I looked at the totality of Scripture, I realized that I don't think that I was being biblical in that. Um, and as I looked through the Scriptures, I do believe that there are cases where remarriages are certainly possibilities. Uh, and I think one of the main criteria, I believe, is when there's no possibility of reconciliation to the former spouse. Um, I'll say that I humbly hold that position. Godly men disagree on this. We spent hours in seminary talking about this. I've spent hours under the mentorship of other pastors uh, swearing this out. And it's not easy. And people land in different places. But I'll say that's where I humbly have fallen on this issue. Um, I think that God's first and foremost desire is for reconciliation. However, reconciliation is not always possible. Uh, if someone's left somebody for someone else, if someone's remarried, um, then the possibility of reconciliation is no longer a possibility. And I, I want to emphasize this, that in, in every case of someone getting married, God is graciously bringing us together. And also remember that it wasn't only for reasons of divorce or physical acts outside of marriage that were considered adultery. If we go to the Sermon on the Mount, if we go to Matthew 5, Christ is going to refer to lust as adultery. So if you have lusted, you've also committed adultery. So we're all dependent on God's grace. But God's view of marriage is that marriage is permanent. It's not intended to be dissolved. So what then is the world's view of marriage? And well, I want to go back now and look at the first five verses of the chapter. 
And we see in those verses that the crowds were pressing in on him, uh, on Jesus, and the Pharisees were there, and they wanted to test him. Now, that's one of the first signs of unbelief, is this testing. This is what the Pharisees loved to do. So they wanted to ask him some questions. And then, so it says there, that in, uh, starting in verse 1, actually starting in verse 2, the Pharisees came, and to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them and said, well, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, he wrote this commandment for you because of your hard hearts. Now, the truth is, if you go back and look in Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, Moses is not instituting divorce. Um, he's not establishing divorce. Moses is trying to manage this in some way because he realizes people out there are getting divorces. So he's trying to figure out, well, well, how are we going to handle this? So it wasn't that he was certainly not promoting divorce. Uh, and this was representative of the Hillel school uh, that I mentioned earlier, that they wanted to be able to get a divorce for any and every reason. Um, so this is really how the world sees marriage. That it is trivial. Uh, you see it in Hollywood. You see in these celebrity marriages. They pretty much become a joke. And it's sad. And it's not in every case. But it seems like it's in most cases. If It's not all cases. And too often people think that they're supposed to stay in this euphoric state of love. There was a book entitled The Book of Times by Leslie Alderman. And it describes what happens to our brains uh, when we fall in love with someone. And then what can quickly happen afterwards. And he says this, this is based on, on some research, that when scientists studied the brain chemistry of the newly in love, the newly love struck, they found that certain chemicals are elevated. They actually, there's a name for this, it's called the juiced brain. So if you felt like you were out of your mind when you got married, well, you probably were. <laughs> Researchers at the University of Pavia, for instance, found that levels of nerve growth factor, NGF, a protein that maintains the health of neurons, were higher in people who had reported just falling in love when compared to single people or those in long-term relationships. But after about a year, the subject's NGF levels fell back to a normal level. But after the first years of wedded bliss, some discontentment seems to follow. They did a poll of 5,000 married couples and found that men and women begin to take their marriage for granted after two and a half years. And this is what that article goes on to say. Half the couples surveyed for the 2008 study reported that they felt undervalued at the two and a half year mark the majority of the men said that they stopped picking up after themselves, while the women were no longer making an effort to look nice for their spouse. A 2011 survey of married couples found that irritation peaks at the three-year mark. More than two-thirds of all those surveyed said that little quirks, which were seemingly harmless and often endearing during the first flushes of love, became major annoyances at 36 months. It may have been cute, but it ain't cute no more. <laughs> That's my summation of this. Now, the world will tell you that if you fall out of love, just move on. Just divorce. 
I love something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. When he was sitting in a Nazi prison, he was actually writing uh, a wedding sermon out for his niece. And in that, that sermon, he says this. He said, today you are young and very much in love. And you think that your love will sustain your marriage. It won't. But your marriage can sustain your love. You're not always going to have that feeling you had in the first year. My wife and I have joked that we would be completely useless in our jobs if we had continued in that place we were. We were all, I think the word is Twitter pated. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, Bruce Wilkinson, have you ever taken a, a Bible class by him? He actually calls that first year the glue of heaven. That God is bringing people together and they're feeling that euphoric state of love. But marriage, marriages are covenants. They're commitments. And God himself brings us together. But the world's view of marriage is that marriage is trivial. If this one doesn't work, just move on to the next. If that one doesn't work, move on to the next. So then based on God's view of marriage, how do disciples correct the world's view? Uh, we're called to follow God as, this, as one flesh. And by the way, any view that would suggest that in order, you, in order for you to follow God, that you need to leave your spouse, you will find that nowhere in Scripture. As a matter of fact, whenever I went to seminary, spouses had to sign a document that they su supported their, sp their spouse's desire to go to seminary. I had to do it uh, when my wife went through school, and she had to do it when I went through school. There is no grounds to leave your spouse because you want to follow God, okay? Uh, you won't find that in the Bible. Um, that's, if someone wants to leave, that's their choice. We can't control someone else's choices. But when, uh, but then what does it mean to follow Christ as one flesh? And I want to go through th three very practical ways uh, to do that. Um, uh, in essence, we see the Holy Spirit working in our lives as believers in marriages to overcome what it was that happened in the fall. Now remember, when God joined Adam and Eve together, they were naked and they were unashamed. However, after the fall, you see that one fleshness come under challenge. And what do they do? They start blaming each other. They're arguing with, uh, arguing with each other, and they clothe themselves. So you see that quality of being naked and unashamed quickly dissolve. And these, uh, these things I'm about to go over, they come from a marriage enrichment class that I teach. I'm actually going to teach that this fall. So we're going to do a marriage tune-up this fall. If you're interested in that, uh, just keep your eyes open in the bulletin. We'll be announcing it. It'll be a, probably a 10 to 12-week class where we walk through um, being one flesh partners in our marriages. So keep, an eye, keep your eyes open for that. So how can we practically follow Jesus one flesh? Well, first of all, uh, we need to do our parts. We start out by doing our part. Now, what does that mean? Well, in essence, that means uh, that you're focusing on the things in your life that you can control and not spending your energy on trying to change the things that you can't control. Like focusing on all the things that you think your spouse could be doing better or tracking what your partner is adding to the relationship. 
That is trying to control someone else. Um, I recently came across an essay, actually it was uh, a collection of Einstein's letters that were auctioned off in 1996. And in that it contained a list of marital expectations. So Einstein, all his genius, was not great at relationships. And these were for his wife, Believe Merrick. And the list included, these are his expectations. This is what he was telling his wife. He said that the laundry, the daily laundry, had to be kept in good order. He expected three meals regularly in his room, a desk maintained neatly for his use only, and the demand that she quit talking or leave the room if he requested it. The marriage ended in divorce. <laughs> Shocker. But what if you were just focusing on what you could do to help that marriage along, decisions you could make, things you could do to improve uh, different parts of the relationship, as opposed to focusing on what your spouse is doing? How much weight are they pulling in this? What aren't they doing that they should be? Now, by the way, this doesn't mean that you just let, um, you let somebody walk all over you. Uh, conflict is necessary in marriage. Now, that doesn't mean combat, but you can have conflict. As a matter of fact, conflict is actually healthy to a marriage. Uh, but if you're expecting that everything is going to be split 50-50, forget it. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so couples that are doing this well are asking themselves, what can I do to improve this area of our relationship? Um, as, over the years, Melissa and I have held virtually every task that you can think of that has to be done for a house. For a while, I, was, I have been the laundry man. I have been the one that packed the lunches. Uh, I've, and I've, I've always been the garbage man. But then the roles have switched. Whenever I was uh, then working, she was staying home, she took on uh, the role of cooking and laundry and things. So we've just flip-flopped as we needed to do to make it through. And I think that's you have to be dynamic like that, thinking, okay, what can I do to help this marriage, to help it along, what's under my control? Um, secondly, it's deciding and not sliding. Deciding and not sliding. This means that we think through, we think throughout our, uh, through, that should say our choices, not out choices. We think through our choices instead of sliding into consequences that we never intended or wanted. It means that we play an active role in choosing what happens in our life and our relationships rather than just letting things happen. Um, because inevitably, if you're going to put off some decisions, it's going to come back and it's going to bite you. And this is very practical stuff. Um, what do we need to not slide? Well, we don't put off decisions that have to be made. Don't put off bills. Um, you'll really wish you hadn't put off car maintenance whenever you go to start that car when it's negative 15 and it just sputters out. Um, not making firm career choices if you keep bouncing and bouncing and bouncing. That can create a lot of stress in a relationship. Unhealthy living habits, whether it's, uh, it could be excessive use of alcohol, it could be tobacco use, um, putting each other down. That's one of the first signs that a, a marriage uh, is going south, is when there's name calling. Now, that may have been your norm growing up, that may be what you saw your parents do, but you do not want to continue doing that. 
And then if there's no budget, even if you're going out on really expensive dates and you just keep sliding that plastic, uh, that can come back and bite you as well. So this is what it means to decide and to, to not slide. Um, if you put off decisions, uh, it's going to come back and it's going to bite. So what does it look like when you're doing this well? It means you're communicating about things coming up. Okay? If somebody says, oh, by the way, in an hour we're supposed to be at a black tie affair, that's, that's not communicating. Um, it's talking about issues of faith talking about what you're learning about God, what do you believe, talking about issues with the kids. It means that both people are participating in the parenting process, not just one. Uh, it's, it's planning retirement. If you're in a job that uh, you can't do your whole life, uh, then you need to think about, well, I can probably do this time 65, 70. Well, are you making plans now to that end? Do you have a will? Have you thought about how your finances are going to go? And finally, number three, you're making it safe to connect. And this is so, so important. Uh, that means that you're working to make your partner feel safe in your relationship. It includes three specific areas, physical safety, emotional safety, uh, and commitment safety. So I want to go through all three of these. Um, first, physical safety, as the name implies, providing physical safety from the fear of being harmed or threatened. This is like bottom line safety. And a marriage relationship cannot continue if there is not physical safety that's happening. I hope that that's the case, that, that in every marriage we have here, that both partners feel physically safe in that. Um, but it's, it's all too common that that's not the case. Any physical aggression uh, is a sign of danger. Now, there are signs of this. There are precursors to this. If you're scared of your spouse, if you feel afraid in your marriage, if your spouse is trying to control you, if your spouse tracks who you're talking with, if they threaten to hurt you or the children, or if they force you to do anything that you are uncomfortable with, then physical safety has been compromised in your marriage. Again, I hope that's not the case with anyone here, um, but if this is happening, you're in a dangerous relationship, and it happens too often uh, not to mention. So if this is the case, you need to reach out. You need to reach out to someone. You can start by reaching out us to us here at the church. If you're in a dangerous situation, or if you know of someone in a dangerous situation, uh, there's, a, there's an advocacy and resource center here in Sheridan. I talked to Becky Ajay about this. She's a counselor we have on staff. We have a, a new counselor named Mo, and her last name's escaping me right now. It's short for Maureen. She's coming on staff as well. But if you're in a situation where you need help, you may need to get out. This is the number you want to call. And you may need to give this to someone else, too, if you know of a situation where someone's in physical safety uh, in their marriage. So that's being physically safe. And second is being emotionally safe, okay, providing emotional safety. And that means that you feel safe to say what you want and need. Uh, to feel you can share what's on your mind. It also means that you feel that your spouse is your friend. That you can trust them with the heart. Things that you're sharing from deep down in here. Uh, and that's a kind of safety and connection that frankly we are all 
desiring to have. This is something that we were made for. When Adam and Eve were described in the garden as being naked and unashamed, this is what we're talking about. Um, so what does that look like in a marriage? Well, it's when a couple can communicate very well and when they can handle conflict and not damage their sense of closeness. It's when the two of you are a source of comfort for one another and you can each be yourself in the relationship. Uh, being one flesh with your partner, does, by the way, that doesn't mean that you're the same. It doesn't mean you have to think the same way about everything. You don't have to have the same opinions, but there's safety to share those opinions. So this is emotional safety, and it's really key to being one flesh with someone. And then finally is commitment safety. And commitment safety is knowing, is about knowing you have a future together, that you're both in it for the long haul. When you have this kind of safety and security in a marriage, you know the answer is yes to questions like, can I count on you, or will you be there through the good and bad times in the years to come? That should be times <laughs> in the years to come. Not bad times sin in the years to come. <laughs> Words are important, aren't they? Words are important. Um, this is about having a sense of security. That no matter what's going to happen, and we don't know the future in our marriages, we don't know what's going to happen to our spouse, that we know that that person's going to be there no matter what. That, that's the definition of safety and connection and being one flesh. So putting us all together, uh, follow Jesus as one flesh by doing your part, deciding and not sliding, and then finally making it safe to connect. I want to tell you about another friend of mine. As we close, it was a guy I had the privilege of working with whenever I was at Dallas Seminary, a guy by the name of Greg Hatterberg. He's actually the guy that Charles Swindoll, you know, the pastor Charles Swindoll, this is the guy that Chuck Swindoll refers to as his hero. And I'll tell you why. Uh, whenever um, Greg and his wife Lisa got married, uh, everything was fine. It was blissful, it was good. But by the third year of their marriage, uh, his wife was diagnosed with MS. Now, the first few years, first five years approximately of her having that disease, there were virtually no symptoms. But quickly, uh, she lost the use of her legs. And then soon after that, she lost the use of her arms. And she has been bedridden for the past 23 years. And Greg's done everything. He does, he does everything. Uh, he'll, he'll put her makeup on. He learned how to do hair. He learned how to do the whole nine yards. And one day, his wife came to him. And she looked at him, and she said, I'm sorry. She said, I'm sorry that I'm not the wife you married. And he looked at her, and he said, you are. He said, your spirit and your smile is the reason I married you. That is a one flesh times a marriage. You know, we don't know what the future holds. Uh, but when you're committed to your spouse, when you're committed to moving together as one flesh, you can get through it. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we need your help. Father, we need your help as we seek to pursue you and follow you with our spouses. 
as being one flesh. Lord, help us to overcome those obstacles, those obstacles to emotional safety and physical safety. Um, God, uh, give us wisdom to know how to respond to our partner and how to love them the way you would have us to love them. And God, help us to know when we need to get help. And we ask all in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. May the blessings of God rest upon you. May God's peace abide in you. May God's presence illuminate your heart now and forevermore. Thank you all so much for being here. You're dismissed.